Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. This week I'm speaking to award-winning writer and illustrator Jackie Morris. Over her career, Jackie has written and illustrated over 80 books. In 2019, she won the Clip Kate Greenaway Medal and the Books Are My Bag Readers Award for the absolutely stunning book, The Lost Words. It is a staple in every bookshop and appeals to both adults and children alike. Told off as a child for drawing and dreaming, she now has the last laugh as she gets to do both every day. Her work has been translated into over 14 languages and has been adapted for stage, film and set to music. A huge supporter of independent bookshops, it's fantastic to have her as a guest today. Jackie, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. It's lovely, lovely to be here. Really nice. It's so lovely to put the face to the illustrations. I feel like your illustrations are just everywhere. We, We always have your books in the shop and obviously you think about the person that creates them but then it's almost like a bit of a magical being because those your illustrations are so mythical and beautiful so it's really lovely to meet you oh thank you I did once go to I can't remember whether it was a school or a bookshop and somebody said oh I thought you were dead (laughs) (laughs) and I think what they meant was there's a a classic timelessness about my work I think that's what they meant really (laughs) I think that's what they meant yeah maybe maybe they needed to work on their communication no not not yet still here (laughs) that's why I'm doing the event with you yeah Brilliant. So as I do with all my guests, I'm going to start off by going back to your childhood. You were born in Birmingham and and raised in Evesham. Yeah. What do you remember about your childhood? I remember sunshine, long summers. Weren't the summers longer when we were young? Oh, my Lord. I think so, yes. Yeah. Six weeks, summer holiday felt like a lifetime, didn't it? Yeah. We we didn't have many books at home, but my mum introduced us to this amazing thing called the library. So we had the library card and it was when they were those little manila envelopes, little, and there was a real charm and a magic to them. They were like a key, just so beautiful. But I didn't learn to read easily. So I used to just take out books and look at the pictures. And I guess in my head, I was making up stories as well. I realised in my 40s that actually I was living with dyslexia. Oh, okay. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't say suffering from it because I think it, it gives you so many different things. It made it difficult to learn to read, but once I'd caught the trick of it, I was away. And it was just that hunger for stories that kept me trying, really. There comes a height in a child's life when people stop reading to them and Mm. expect them to read to themselves. My kids didn't actually escape me reading to them, and I still (laughs) do it now, and they're 27 and 29. That's so lovely. Yeah. That's so lovely. I think shared reading aloud is... It's very underrated, and I think there should be more of it. But one of the things that I find now, I had an experience in a library a few years back where a father came up to me and said, "Um, your books allow me to read to my children, and I can't read. 
And we forget, we people who can read forget that 25% of the population can't, Yeah. but still have that desire for story, which is one of the things I keep in mind when I'm making books. So the illustrations are there to give space for the people who can't read, like the child that I was. That's amazing. Yeah, and like you say, for both adults and children, because to have an adult that can't read, but then also to have a child that maybe hasn't developed that language at that point, yeah. to still be able to kind of communicate with both different groups in, in a different way. Yeah, and if you think about how we live as literate people, you know, I've got lists all over the place. I think people make the mistake of thinking that people who are illiterate are unintelligent. It's not <laughs> to do with intelligence. It's to do with the mechanics of reading. And some people just cannot get it. So your life without reading, without understanding everything that is thrown at you, it's almost like there's like a tyranny of literacy. You know, everything is done through the written word. Mm. Anyway, soapbox. Ah. (laughs) Soapbox moments. Yes, I remember my youth. Yes. Back to the question. So um, you've said in the past that you knew you wanted to be an artist from a young age. I think it was the age of six mm. after watching your dad draw a picture of a lapwing. Was your dad an artist or was it just something he was just doing for fun? My dad was a policeman and um, I think he'd always loved to draw. But my family were very working class and my parents both left school very early and got work, you know, to bring money in for the family. And both reading and drawing were considered to be lazy activities that you did when all your chores were done. So dad used to kind of hide drawing. And every now and again, he would pick up a pencil. And I I would just, you know, you worship your parents when you're a kid. Mm -hmm. Most people do. I just thought it was some kind of godlike gift watching this bird appear on a piece of paper using a pencil. And I just so wanted to do that. So my kind of narrative used to be that I wanted to be an artist. I didn't know what the word artist was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that you had to grow up. So what I wanted to do was to be able to do that. I wanted to make a bird appear on a piece of paper using a pencil. And did you start working on it or start trying things out from that point on? Yeah, I'd I'd always drawn. Mm -hmm. I'd always loved just making marks on paper. And, you know, most of us do when we're young and we're we're allowed that space to play. And then at some point that is taken away. And also we start to look around and compare our work with other people. And then if somebody's better than you, you just think you're no good. So you stop. But I just had a hunger to mark paper. Yeah, I've talked about that, I've talked about that with quite a few illustrators, actually, because it's so true you know you look at every child every child sits there with a with a pen or a crayon and a piece of paper and happily whiles away the time and I just can't quite work out where for a lot of people that drops off yeah yeah it's it's sad that it does because yeah if you don't do it regularly I think then to go back to it is actually quite relaxing you know yeah I think part of it drops off as your self-awareness and self-critical nature grows you know small kids they are the center of their own universe Mm -hmm. do you remember that you know kind of and then you kind of awaken to the lives of others and for some that is just people but for others that is all life Mm -hmm. and at that moment you start to look at yourself and compare yourself to other things Um, I wasn't particularly interested in people I'm still actually not (laughs) 
And I think that kind of saved me from a lot of things. You know, I was looking at birds and wanting wings, wanting all the ability, wanting to be able to sing like that, wanting to be a bear. It's a quite simple way of thinking, just to get rid of all of the external pressures and just focus on what you want to do. Sounds lovely. Yeah, yeah. So, so you mentioned the library. So you were reading quite a lot as a child, but you didn't have many books in the house. Is there a particular book that you remember as having quite an impact on you as a child or was there just a whole load that you... So when I was not reading words and only pictures, there was a particular edition which I'd loved of The Jungle Book by Kipling, um, which had colour plates in it. And I just loved that. And I guess I would Mm -hmm. have seen the Disney film so I had an idea of what the story was. Two of the first books I remember once I started to understand how to uncode the alphabet to make the stories sit differently in their head was The Call of the Wild by Jack London. Oh, three mm-hmm. three really seminal books. Call of the Wild by Jack London, uh, Watership Down, with that beautiful, oh, yes. beautiful cover, by which I didn't know then about illustrators' names, but it's Pauline Baines who um, illustrated the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, who did that beautiful cover with the rabbit on. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, that, it's just amazing. And then the other one was Tarka the Otter, which is the most, the language in Tarka. It's like a prose poem. It's just so dense. How on earth I read that as a child. I think most of it must have gone straight over my head, really. And that, of course, was illustrated by Tunicliffe, who has been a big influence, I would say, on my life. So even then, I can't remember, I don't think my Call of the Wild had pictures, but I was drawn to the images. That's still the best book cover in the world, that Pauline Baines one. I can't believe that I didn't know that about that, because both of those books, well, the series of books, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the Narnia series, plus The Worship Down, were so fundamental as part of my childhood and I just had never made that connection so something else I found out recently was that she only got a fee for those illustrations she didn't get a royalty and you know they're iconic they influenced the films she didn't get paid for that either oh my god and it's just it's quite shocking really but that's what illustration was like at the time you didn't even get credited in any kind of listings then for some reason illustration which I see word and image as being equal in fact I always annoy Robert well not annoy but I tease Robert by saying you know words are just images it's just the alphabet is just 26 images so basically everything's an illustration everything is in images yeah it is the thing is there's an argument for that because in in a lot of books especially the kind of books that you create the font and the typeface that's used it, it's not just standard font that you would see mm. on a computer it, it is part of of the imagery so I can totally see why you would say that. Yeah. I was in London last week at a book launch and I got off the train at Farringdon Tube Station, which I haven't been to since they've done it all up in preparation for the Elizabeth line. And they've got this gorgeous art installation of a printer's press. And so it's basically got the kind of original letters as would have been used in an old printing press, but blown up into you know big big cubes all the way down so you've got the full alphabet um on, yeah. on the side of the, the station and even though that's just quite a simple font i was kind of blown away by that actually i thought it was really stunning just by seeing the 26 letters of the alphabet so yeah i agree with you i i love what you can do with them i love how using 26 images you can build 
cities, you can build worlds, you can make characters that people fall in love with just using 26 images yeah. and shuffling them, which is all writers do. That's all I yeah. do. <laughs> but some of them are really good at shuffling them into beautiful necklaces. I love this. I love this. And do you know what? Hearing the way you speak, and I was doing the same when I was reading some of the information, the descriptions that you write about your books um, on your website and in various other places. It's very lyrical the way you, you speak. You can definitely tell that you've got that artistic streak in you, even if you didn't know that. So you went to school in Evesham and, and then afterwards you went to college. You went to Hereford and then you went to Exeter. Uh, what did you study when you were there? I studied illustration. Um, I went to Hereford to do foundation because at that point you had to do a bit of everything before you went on to do a degree. I was very, very fixed that it was illustration that I wanted to do. I wanted to be an artist, but I'd been told that you couldn't be an artist because only certain people were artists. I think the implication being people with private incomes, um, mm -hmm. posh people. But I was kind of looked around and saw the plethora of images that are in our world and thought, you know, somebody has to do these. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give it a try. I can always have a part-time job to support it and I'll see how it goes. But rather than just go straight into being an artist, I went for the more commercial end, which is illustration. I wasn't at Exeter for very long. The course really didn't suit me. I was there for two terms and then I moved to Bath. Yeah, you went to Bath Academy. It sounds, it sounds like a fantastic place. I've not heard of it until... They I, had I peacocks, you know. I mean, come on. <laughs> so it was in a stately home and a big old house and there were peacocks wandering around the streets and it was very wow. much more... I think Exeter was very graphic design orientated and Bath was very self-development orientated. Mm -hmm. So it gave me more freedom. And I wouldn't say it was a more beautiful place to live because Exeter was by the sea and the moors. So, yeah, it was strange because I remember my interview with the head of illustration and he said, well, your work isn't very good, um, but I'm not really interested in talented people because talented people get lazy and rest on their talent. But you are so hungry for this. And that's why I'm giving you the place. Oh my goodness. And I always remembered that because... You know, there were so many people I was at college with whose work was so much better than mine. It didn't matter. You know, it wasn't that I wasn't interested in their work. I loved their work, but I just wanted to learn. And the only way you learn is by doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And I would just work and work and work. So I kind of got what he meant was, you know, mm. I was so hungry to be able to do it, to learn how to draw. And I would talk to my fellow students and ask them you know what well, how do you do that how do you make that happen so it just it sounds like Bath Academy was, it was a really good place for you and it, it was interesting when I was looking into it is this whole thing about specializing tailoring the course to the person rather than some kind of structured mm. um syllabus is what mm. they seem to do so you went from that and then is it am I right in thinking from there you moved to London yeah I did because I thought every I thought all the publishing houses are in London you have to live in London I lived in a tiny flat with three other people and I touted my work around editorial mostly it was magazines and mm. newspapers and got some work but very swiftly moved back to Bath to live in a very cold farmhouse on the edge of Bath <laughs> where the windows used to frost round about October 
and then they'd soar again in March. Sounds um, delightful. <laughs> yeah, it was so cold. We used to shove a cat up your jumper in the studio and had about four or five jumpers on and mittens and yeah, it was cold. So were you working on editorial work whilst you were living yeah. in Bath? Yeah. Yes. So I would, um, at the time, there was a thing called Red Star with the train. Mm-hmm. So I worked a lot with Radio Times and they would either fax me the brief. This is pre-email, pre-digital, or they'd put it on the Red Star and I'd go, I'd cycle down to the railway station and pick it up on a Friday and then work over the weekend to do the illustration, drawing with a pencil on paper and then I would put that into the same envelope and red star it back on the Monday morning to them. Oh, wow. And yeah, so that was, uh, I, I worked for New Statesman and New Socialist and New Internationalist and Radio Times a lot and Independent. So when you were doing that, were you working on ideas or were you thinking about stuff of your own at that point? Or did you just think that was where you were going to be? No, that was it. That, I wasn't, I had no desire to do books, that's for sure. I did book jackets, mostly not particularly good ones. Um, (laughs) And I I got a reputation for being able to deal with very difficult subjects like illustrations about cervical cancer. Not easy. Not easy to get your head around that. I did work for New Internationalist, which revolved around refugees, about trade and aid as uh, used as a weapon nothing changes i was about to say the irony that we're talking about that today yeah this is the 90s and my work was getting darker and darker and i was working on a piece of work for oxfam and new internationalist and i was listening to the radio and there was a a news article about how oxfam were producing this pamphlet which was political and that if it went to press, they would lose their charitable status. And I thought, that's what I'm working on. Oh, goodness. And it got pulled because Oxfam couldn't afford to lose their charitable status. Mm-hmm. because of, So, you know, government censorship. By that point, I had had enough, and I went away to Australia for a year to have a rest. Mm. There's something about doing that, isn't it? Just kind of removing yourself from reality. Couldn't cope. So, so I went to Australia and ended up in a very racist society where uh, Joe Bielke Peterson had just finished being whatever it is of Queensland, and it was yeah, that was a another eye opener. But beautiful, beautiful creatures. And yeah. I came back painting in colour, which I'd, I'd left working in black and white, and I came back working in colour. So what did you do in that year? Were you just taking time out and travelling around? I travelled a little bit, but I'm not a, I'm not really a traveller. I'm and the stars disturbed me because they were all in the wrong place. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I drew and I sold drawings and paintings, worked for Penguin in Australia, did some work for Oxford University Press, I think, in the UK. So, and again, it's, you know, it's pre-digital. Communication mm-hmm. was by letter. And, wow. Uh, yeah. Between Australia and the UK. Yeah. Um, now I find myself working between Australia and the UK because Alison, who is our wonderful designer, who has designed so much of my work from The Lost Words, she was the gift that came with The Lost Words because she designed it. And ever since, I haven't really wanted to work with any other designers Mm -hmm. she's amazing in that she kind of understands the inside of my head and makes my work better than I could imagine it which is just you know astonishing 
So let's talk about the lost words. In 2015, you were one of 30 authors and illustrators to write docs for the University Press expressing your concern about the removal of a number of words from the Oxford Junior Dictionary. Yeah. And these words included things like acorn, bluebell, heron, and unbelievably kingfisher. Yeah. Conquer was the one that really got me because, you know, (laughs) one of the things I remember from my childhood was in the park in Evesham, there were some conquer trees and you would go and you would fill your pockets with shiny conkers. Yeah. And you'd stamp on the little spiky Yeah, throw sticks at the tree. Yeah. When the book first came out, I mean, we'll kind of jump around a little bit because I, I kind of want to jump this for a second. But when it, when it first came out, I remember hearing that it was based on these words that disappeared from the dictionary. But at the time, it hadn't filtered through that it was the junior dictionary. So then mm. there was a little bit of confusion because it was like we were all saying, well, but they are still in the dictionary. And then we, then we realised what was going on. And when I first saw the book, I thought, well, that must just be something that somebody's made up because there's no way that these words wouldn't be in the dictionary you know just I just couldn't compute it at all yeah and obviously you know the letter that you contributed to it didn't blame Oxford University Press but it was more just about the kind of the negative shift in culture and what's happening to children it was a request to think again about their editorial policy Mm. really a lot of strange things happened around that book and one was if you'll bear with me for a story yeah I love a story Um, I was with my friend Hamzin Abbott, who is a wonderful stained glass maker, and we were going to see a tree which is called the white-leaved oak, which apparently is the centre of the known universe. It's in Herefordshire. And we pulled up at this village, and there was one of those boxes of books by the roadside that said paperbacks 20p, hardbacks 50p. Yeah. I opened the lid, and the very top book was the Oxford Junior Dictionary Illustrated Edition. No. And I took it out. And I looked at it, and sure enough, there's no otter, there's no acorn. But it was amazing. It was just like in this place, really so random. It's just astonishing. And I thought, yeah, I'll buy that. And I did have a plan to go into bookshops and find copies and just draw them in. (laughs) Um, But I was kind of advised by my publishers against damaging bookshops. Because, yeah, I thought, you know. Anyway, this seemed to be a better solution. Yes, because your solution, what you wrote the letter, you participated in, in, in that communication, but then that letter then inspired you to contact Robert McFarlane to ask him whether he'd like to work with you. Um, and the result is this stunning yeah. book, The Lost Words. So tell me how that came into being. Tell me how, how you worked with him and, and where the ideas came from. Well, I I only wrote to ask if he would do a forward for a book. I, I had an idea just to do a small dictionary-sized book that would just have a colour plate on one side and the dictionary definition on the other of the refused words. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, thanks very much. Lovely to hear from you. Really love your work. Really busy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then about four or five weeks later, he went, oh, I can't get this idea out of my head. Do you want to work with me on something? I, I understand that you write, so you might just want me to go away. But I feel like there's something that we could do here that could, you know, be quite strong. And I said, no, you know, let's let's work together. That would be mm-hmm. fine. Um, we hadn't met at this point. And then he and I together put together this proposal, which was then, he said, oh, we'll, we'll have to show it to Hamish Hamilton first because they're my publisher and, but they they won't want to do it because this you know they don't do books like this. And I said, mm-hmm. well, nobody does books like this. 
you know, uh, right from the start, I wanted it to be huge. And they called what is known as an extraordinary acquisitions meeting that day when they received the proposal and said yes. Wow. So, and then it was all hard work from there on, really. But they were an amazing team to work with. Hermione Thompson is the, um, our editor and Simon Prosser and Anna Ridley. And then, you know, Alison. <laughs> Alison! Alison. Because <laughs> nobody knew. We didn't know. We had the idea to do the three spreads. So the first spread would be the absence. And to begin with, we were trying to work out how, you know, Rob said, we'll just paint the landscape, but without the thing in it. And I thought, well, I can look out my window and not see an otter any day of the week mm. but it's not lost from the landscape although some of the things are rare it's lost from the alphabet it's lost from the dictionary mm. which is why we had that kind of scatter of the alphabet with the letters picked out mm -hmm. at which point rob said oh i'm glad that you're you've come back to this abstraction i was very worried about how much work you were going to have to do because you know it's a lot of work but actually the hardest work is finding the ideas of how mm. to express an absence of Wren. Yeah. So I said, I'm really glad that you've chosen to do the acrostic poetry and not write an essay because mm -hmm. it's a lot less work for you. And he went, <laughs> all right, touche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, some, it's like there's another mistake that people make, which is, oh, we'll ask her to do it in black and white because it's cheaper. It's like, actually, it's the same surface area that I'm painting and black and white can be harder than colour. Mm. It's, it's simply a different tool that you're using, yeah. isn't it? It's weird. Yeah. Weird. People are weird. I don't understand them. <laughs> well, you talked about the fact that you wanted it to be different as something that hadn't existed before. It, it's totally true. I mean, I was a relatively new bookseller when The Lost Words came out and it really has changed. We actually changed the structure of our children's room to account for, for books like The Lost Words now because now there's this wonderful selection of like children's non-fiction that also adults can really appreciate as well and mm. as a result we, we pulled out one set of shelves and put in some others that you could display them all face out and they just don't stay on the shelves they just yeah. they just sell and sell. You won the uh, Clip Cake Greenaway Medal for the book together with the inaugural Shadow Shadowers Choice Award, um, as well as the Books My Bag Award. So you had a you had a good year. What did all of that mean to you? Yeah, well, it changed my life really because I'd worked in publishing for years. I, I started working in children's books the week after my son was born, and he's twenty nine now. I felt like to actually become visible in what is quite a loud world. It's really difficult. And I'd made a living, but my living had been ironically supported in publishing by the sales of my paintings. So in between doing books, I would just paint. Just to mm -hmm. unwind, it was a process of unwinding. You get more and more tense doing illustration. You know, you so many things to think about. But The Lost Words made my work much more visible. The Lost Words is, you can just tell it's, it's, it's something special and it continues to be incredibly popular today. In fact, just the other day in one of my shops, there was a little girl that came in who saw it on Face Out and she was probably about five or six. She was that sort of age. 
And she went over to her mum and she said, mum, I have to have this book. I need this book. <laughs> and her mum was like, well, okay, so is this book you'd like? Yes, yeah, she said, I've read some of it at school, but I need to read the rest of it. And I really want my own copy. And she was adamant. She wouldn't even look at the rest of the oh, shop. Oh, bless. And she, I mean, she was, you know, the book was... Bigger than her. It yeah. wasn't quite, but it wasn't far off. Yeah. And she was so happy, so happy. So it was just really lovely to see that this beautiful product that you and Robert have created is not only giving really important messages to its readers, but it's also inspiring a huge amount mm. of, of, of joy. It also it had so many champions. You know, there were people who crowdfunded to put copies into every school. Mm-hmm. Halfway through, less than halfway through the book, I think when Rob first announced that we were doing it, we were approached by a lady called Antonia Harrison who worked at Compton Verney to ask if when the book was done she could run an exhibition of it. At this point, she hadn't seen any of the artwork. She wasn't sure what the book was. And I had to say, no, I can't take that extra pressure as well. Mm-hmm. But halfway through doing the book, when I I looked at the work and we went back to her and said, you know, is this still available because we would like to do it. What I hadn't known at the time was that she wanted to pair the exhibition with a John Constable exhibition. I'm really glad I didn't know that because I might have said yes and I wouldn't have got the work done in time. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being on at the same time as Quentin Blake exhibition at Compton Verney. And it was amazing to see the work that I'd done in this incredible space. And that exhibition's still touring. So it's on in Bournemouth at the moment at the Russell Coates Museum. And so five years on, still touring, which is lovely. That's amazing. People walk into it and cry. And I love that because I like making people cry. <laughs> For all the right reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so you work with a range of different publishers, including Unbound, which yes. is... And we'll come on to one of your new books shortly. But Unbound is unusual because it's a crowdfunding publisher that works with authors and it produces just simply stunning books. What appeals to you about working with that publisher? I'd watched them for a while from when they first came out and I'd not really moved towards them because you don't get an advance and you need, you know, publishing is a really hard world to work in still. Some writers get paid very well. Others are expected to work for next to nothing. And you need an advance in order to live and pay the mortgage. You know, we we don't photosynthesize. I wish that we did. (laughs) Um, So I'd watched it for a while. And um, I guess the last word means that financially I could afford to take the risk. And one of the things is over the years, because of the way my books have sold, I've built up a a relationship with my readers and also with bookshops. I do love a bookshop. (laughs) I think foremost, I'm a reader before I'm a writer and I love a browse. So it's that you have right from the start of a project as close a relationship as you want to have. I think if people are going to invest in your book two years before it actually comes out, then you owe them the story of that book as you're doing it. They're so part of it. The first book that I did with them was The Unwinding. And because of the people who funded that to 100%, it then came out in America. It's in Germany. It's coming out in China. And that's all because those people had faith that I could do something with my dreaming. Mm. Um, And that's wonderful to make, to really connect readers and writers. Uh, The thing is, when you're doing a book, you can't make what people want. You can only make what is in your soul and hope that people come with you. 
Mm-hmm. And Unbound gives you that really close connection to people who will. I'm hoping everybody's going to be okay when Featherleaf comes out because it's such a different thing. And I don't really understand it still. <laughs> well, let's talk about Featherleaf. So Featherleaf Bark and Stony, it's out very soon. It's like you say, is incredibly unusual. It's it's not words on a page, it's not illustrations, but you've actually superposing the language onto different surfaces, feathers, gold leaf, so on. Tell me a little bit more about it. I mean, that's that's what I know so far. But Yeah, it's hard to know where to start this story, really. But I think the best place is when I was working on The Lost Spells, my father was taken into hospital and it was very obvious that he was near the end of his life. And I'd almost finished the book when he died and I had to continue working to finish the book because there's a lot of finance tied up in a book. Mm -hmm. I couldn't just stop and grieve. At the same time, we were just heading into the pandemic. So dad's funeral was the day after lockdown. (sighs) I came home having spent nearly three months at my mum's. I love where I live. I live by the sea quite broken, Mm. quite strange, not being able to paint. I brought my mum back with me because I couldn't leave her on her own during lockdown. You know, she'd been married for 60 years to my dad. And so that was a different dynamic. Fortunately, uh, fortunately, because of lockdown, my neighbour who has a holiday let was able to allow my mum to stay there. So otherwise she wouldn't have been able to come. And I walked and sat and I thought and I wrote very short pieces and so my focus was not on drawing it was on finding words it was finding a pathway through grief it was turning to the light it was remembering what I find joyful and for some reason I started just typing my dad's typewriter that's what it was so I was using dad's typewriter to type on gold leaf And the squares are only eight centimetres by eight centimetres. So it has to fit, it has to look, it has to sound, it's different textures. And um, I put a few up on Instagram and then I messaged John Mitchinson and said, "Um, I I think I've got an idea for a book here. And then I typed the pitch on a piece of gold leaf. I read that, I thought it was fabulous. Yeah, I found it again the other day because I'd actually written it in pen first and I found it and I sent it to him to go, look, this was the pitch. I'm just looking for it now to see if I can find it to read it to you. Here it is. It says, Thoughts often fleeting, swift as hairs, caught and held as language in ink to share. That was my pitch. (laughs) I love that. Apparently, that is not how you pitch a book, but it was typed on gold leaf. And I had said to him, I think I've got the makings of a book. But what we didn't know at that time was how on earth we would present it. I then started typing on leaves and feathers, you know, because all art really comes from curiosity. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was thinking, well, yeah, what happens if I put a feather in my typewriter? I can't believe it works. It's quite hard because people now ask me, how do you type on feathers? And I just go, I don't know. I can actually show you because I have a copy of Wild Swans and this feather here. Oh, my goodness. And this one is like a cross between. It says she placed the curse like a web 
falling softly over each of us as we lay sleeping. How could she know as bones became hollow, feathers broke through skin, I would receive her curse as a blessing? Oh, wow. I mean, it's so different. It's nature writing with a difference because it's yes. <laughs> written on nature, but then everything is nature. I've also started doing these things which are called a heavy light. Oh, my goodness. Which is painting goldly feathers on stones. Wow. It's incredible. I'm probably the least creative person you could meet. So meeting somebody and speaking to somebody who's creative and I've got a creative mind, is I find it fascinating. How can you say, as somebody who runs a bookshop, that you are the least creative person? Because your whole sculpture is your bookshop. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, you know, this, this is the thing, creativity. We're all creative. I have a friend who works in government, and one of the things that she did is frame the soil policy for the UK that is so creative but people see it as being science so it's not creative creativity is what we do creativity is questioning it's curiosity it's you know the creativity that you do look what you give to people with your curated bookshops you know access for that little girl to that book that she just really wanted it's a special thing so don't say you're not creative that's really lovely thank you you put on your blog recently that you'd received your proofs of this book and it just looks stunning. I can't wait to see it in the shop. And talk about the shops. I mean, what you just said there, but I maybe feel quite emotional. It's a lovely thing for you to say. Thank you. You are a massive, massive advocate of, of independent bookshops and have been for a long time. And it's mm. just literally been announced just yesterday that this year you're the designer of the Books in My Bag limited edition tote bag. Yeah. Which is fantastic. So for people that don't know what they are, the totes, are they're a massive part. They're a key part of Bookshop Day. Bookshop Day um, takes place in October uh, and every year, and it, it's basically a celebration of bookshops. What did it mean to you to be asked to do that? Oh, it was amazing. Uh, it was worrying because I hadn't got time to do it. <laughs> you know, every day I say, I'm not going to take on any more work. I'm just doing the bird book. I'm not taking on anything else. And then that came through. It's like, oh, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from this. Oh, wow. And it felt like a real honour because I go into bookshops to sign and just do stock signings sometimes. And But I always end up coming out with loads of books and often roundabout bookshop day. Usually Rossiter's bookshop would give me whatever this year's, you know, and I'd, I'd look at them. Last, What was last year's? Was it Charlie Mackesy? It was Daffo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. I've got that one. And then um, Charlie Mackesy the year before. And they're lovely bags. And you can fit a lot in them. Yeah. And you can fit big books in them as well. Anyway, just absolute honour. And then I wanted to do something that was different. I loved the really open brief, which was whatever you want. Oh, amazing. (laughs) It's like, you know, that's the the one. That's the best (laughs) brief in the world. And because I've been playing a lot with foxes, with accordion books and with spell songs because I've got a band they they call themselves my band now my band um <laughs> and you know I paint foxes on stage while they sing play yeah. music it's a beautiful thing to do I've heard that I've heard I know people that have been to see you and it's, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic yeah yeah it's a lovely joining of different crafts together to make something magic so I went for fox and tried to write a story, a very short one that incorporates the words books on my bag. Cheated a bit with the bag because it's the end of one word and the start of another. 
Oh, that's clever. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. We were just discussing in my shop this morning, you know, because we, we, we're told about them at this point in the year and we need to order a load in and we're like, we need to order so many. Yeah. We think it's going to be incredibly, incredibly popular. I hope so. They seem to say they have a limited edition of 10,000 and I was thinking, oh, I wonder if we could crack that. I think we will. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for me, the thought of people coming and buying all their Christmas presents in an independent bookshop and carrying them out in their bags or maybe buying more than one bag to put the present in so you get a bag and a book as a present brilliant lovely it's amazing and you can't get them on i'm not even going to say the name we're not going to say the name we're not going to say the name bookshops are where they need to be so you've obviously got a whole bunch of different things going on but what are you working on at the moment i mean obviously you've got a couple of books that are coming out shortly um which means mm. you're probably in that stage of just kind of preparing for that oh yeah no, it is quite chaotic because I've got Featherleaf Bark and Stone comes out in June, but so does Mrs. Noah's Song, which <laughs> is illustrated by James Mayhew. And it's the third in the series of books about Mrs. Noah, who is a woman. She is a rebel with a sewing machine um, <laughs> and she sings. And this one is wrapped around birdsong. It's about listening. There's a line in it where one of the children says to her, why are you sad? And she says something like, you know, well, sometimes it's good to be sad when you're remembering things. You know, sad isn't always bad. No. Sometimes it can be beautiful. And I think it's important to have things like that in books because kids often get very, very sad. And mm -hmm. when you're young and you have emotions, they are all-encompassing and you think, you're never going to be happy again. Mm -hmm. So to open up conversations like that, I think is good. So that's the first two. Then the next two, Lord of the Forest is coming out as a big book with Grafeg. And that's one of my earlier ones before I was a writer. So it's written by Caroline Pitcher. Mm -hmm. um, used to be with Francis Lincoln. And then also Something About a Bear is coming out with Otter Barry Books. I'm looking forward to that one coming out because it's had a redesign from Alison and it has a beautiful new cover and just looks like a. It, it was shortlisted for the Greenaway, which was my first time ever. But this new cover is, it just makes it into a different book. It's gorgeous. And again, it's the big size. So the end papers of that are grizzly bear paws and a child can put their hands on and just <laughs> see how big that bear is. And feel it and become it that's oh. the best bit of the book and then later in I think around the 8th of October are the two accordion books which is the first of a series of what I thought was going to be 10 but John from Unbound seems to want to be 50. <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky enough to get a bit of a glimpse of, of one of those just before we started recording and it's absolutely stunning. So can't wait to see those. And I, I hope they I hope they are out for Bookshop Day. That'll be a really lovely combination. Yeah, I hope so. They're very small. They're very small and you can put them in your pocket and carry them with you. And they're half book, half art object. It says, together they are a spell to summon the animal spirit. That's what it says on the back. It says, using antique watercolours from boxes that haven't been opened for over 150 years, woken with drops of water. There's something really magic about using these very, very early paint cakes that my predecessors used, or in the case of the boxes that I have didn't use. So they're actually original paints? They are original paints. Some of them are 200 years old, 200 wow. years sleeping. 
Somebody said to me once, because the boxes are quite expensive, they said, uh, you shouldn't be using those. They're really expensive. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to just add some water and make them more expensive. But it uses up. You know, most of them are in museums. I have one set which has never even been unwrapped and really should be in a museum. And when I bought it, I did say to the person selling it, I am going to use this. Are you okay for me to buy it still? And he said, I'll give you a discount. Really? Yeah. Oh. Because yeah. once the paints are gone, the box is worth not much. But but then you've got all this amazing artwork that you've created with it. And... Yeah, yeah. So the books in my bag bag is painted with a Reeves set and each of the paint cakes has pressed onto it a sight hound, a beautiful, a beautiful, but I love the fact that it's like a pack of hounds, the whole tray of paints, and I made a fox out of it. Oh, wow. That's so cool. The link between the two. Oh, I can't wait. Jackie, it's, oh, it's, I could chat to you for hours. I really could. It's been amazing to talk to you. It's been, like I said at the beginning, it's been wonderful to speak to the woman behind some of my absolute favourite books. So thank you so much. Should we talk about what I'm reading at the moment? Well, (laughs) (laughs) we normally do, but we've just got off on tangents. Do you want to tell me what you're reading at the moment? What I'm reading at the moment, we'll just slip this in at the end. I'm reading The Book of Trespass by Nick Hayes. Oh, yes. Which previously I only read the pictures, but now I'm reading the words as well. (laughs) And I'm also reading The Dream Quest of Velet Bow by Kidge Johnson. And Kidge Johnson is an amazing American author who wrote one of my favorite ever short stories, which is called The Man Who Bridged the River of Mist. She also wrote a book called Kitsune about a man who falls in love with a fox. It's all coming back to the fox. Yeah. Kitsune is a wonderful book. I'm not even sure it's in print, actually, but it changes the way you see foxes. Kitsune are are Japanese fox spirits. They can be male or female. (laughs) When they turn human, they're very beautiful, and they often lure men into strange places. So, yeah, Kids Johnson, she's wonderful. Excellent. Dot, dot, dot. The fox will follow. <laughs> I didn't mean to turn it round into foxes again. Just, just, I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much. It has been absolutely lovely chatting to you. And um, best of luck with everything that's happening this year. I don't think you're going to need it. Um, I can't wait to get the tote bags into the shop. I can't wait to get your new books in as well. So. Mm. And the Book of Birds won't be out until 2024. I've got until autumn 2023, which seems like a long way away. But I have got so much to paint. And this is at the moment, what the book's going to look like. Oh, see, look at this. I'm getting insight into... This This is a oh, dummy man. book, but I've been oh, drawing in it. Oh, my goodness. I wish people could see this, because people <laughs> aren't going to be able to see this. No, that's why I'm showing it to you, because they're not allowed to see this bit. Amazing. It's, you know, it's not The Lost Birds. And I know that that is going to be a pun that many, many journalists use. But, uh, yeah. Something to look forward to. Jackie, thank you so much. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.